Welcome to the Career Pod, brought to you by Transition Solutions. I'm Kevin Fandel, and I'll be your host for today's program. I'll be talking to Kathy Romeo about her career trajectory and the choices she made at different points along the way. Early in her career, because of her professional training, she took a very senior role as an executive assistant. Doing that for several years, she also got married and started a family and stepped out of the full-time career path trajectory. However, she did still want to stay engaged in some area of work or some organization or cause while she was raising her family. This led to what she describes as perhaps the most pivotal point in her career and working life. She volunteered for an organization, one that was relatively new across the nation and focusing on certain aspects of women's health. She developed that first volunteer effort into a very different career trajectory than she might have had had she stayed an executive assistant. She began working in various aspects of women's health and in various environments well beyond the traditional medical facility, hospitals, and clinic setting. Finally, you'll hear how that initial volunteering decision led to a career of tremendous personal growth and fulfillment for her, as well as a legacy of work of tremendous importance in the area of women's health. Here's Kathy Romeo. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks, Kevin. Um, why don't we start with just a, a little background, you know, your early life and kind of approaching, uh, you know, late teens, early 20s, college age, and where you, where you started. Mm -hmm. Sure. I grew up the eldest of five in an Irish immigrant family, and it was always understood by me that when I graduated from high school, any advanced education would be my responsibility financially, and also that I really needed to be able to support myself as soon as possible. Yeah. So I accepted a scholarship to Catherine Gibbs College in Boston, which was a two-year liberal arts and business prep school that prepared students well, I think, still mm -hmm. think to this day, for administrative work in a spectrum of different company environments. At the time, that was a very traditional choice for young women. My first job was as the executive assistant to a vice president of the information systems department at State Street Bank and Trust in Boston. Mm -hmm. And once again, that was a very, a fairly traditional role for a young woman then. Was it, was it non-traditional to start at such a senior administrative level or was that something that the Catherine Gibbs credentials bought you in a sense? I believe Yes, that the, the credentials from Catherine Gibbs bought you a, a higher entry-level right, position right. then. There was definitely a, an awareness that Gibbs graduates were well-trained mm -hmm. and understood how to provide that administrative support at a more senior level. Yeah, okay. So it was, uh, it was, it was a wonderful job, and it was an, an exciting position to have right out of school. I really enjoyed it. My boss, after several years, actually left to found his own management consulting company, and I went with him mm -hmm. in the same role, mm -hmm. and once again enjoyed that. It was I learned a lot in that startup environment, and uh, honestly, a lot of the skills I learned then at both in my education at Catherine Gibbs, and then in those two roles at the bank, and then the consulting company. Uh, 
have carried me forth to this day. I still wow. use them. I use a lot of what I learned about um, technical skills. And although I don't use the shorthand I learned way back then, <laughs> right. it, um, it, it was a good discipline. And I'm grateful for all of that. That's good to hear because as we talked earlier uh, before we started taping, your career went into areas very, very different than... Uh, than State Street or, mm -hmm. or management consulting. So, mm -hmm. but, those, so but those fundamentals carried through to very different environments. They did, they yes. absolutely did. Yeah. So uh, in after several years in both of those positions, uh, I married and yeah. when our first child was born once again, I followed what was a more traditional path back then to become a stay-at-home mom. Mm -hmm. In that role, which I loved, and, and I would say it's probably my favorite career oh, role, and I consider it that, yeah. but in that role, I did seek volunteer opportunities. I wasn't ready to go back into the workforce. There weren't as many opportunities for, for doing the kind of work that I had done then mm -hmm. in a very limited or part-time capacity. So I looked around and thought about volunteering. And honestly, I believe now that that choice to think about volunteer opportunities was perhaps one of the most significant things I could have done to prepare me for the career that I've ultimately worked in, or, or a variety of several different careers, really. And so I'm a, a huge fan of volunteerism and of what it can provide to you in terms of helping you to determine what's important to you, what matters, what values are significant. And if you can weave those into a career, I believe that people are happier. That's an interesting perspective because many people, I think these days, see volunteering as a way to get experience or credentials to the life, you know, to, to the work aspect of their life mm -hmm. and not so much as a way to discover and clarify and nurture the, the values, the, discover their own values internally and nurture those. Mm -hmm. People think of it as investment in career advancement um, and you saw it as investment in kind of personal growth. Mm -hmm. nice. Absolutely. Nice. I yeah. truly did. Yeah. So let's talk in a little more detail about how you first entered the volunteer arena and how one thing led to another. Sure. So my first volunteer work was as a La Leche League leader. That's an organization that supports and educates new mothers on parenting and breastfeeding. And that role led me eventually to become a La Leche League statewide organizer and trainer of new leaders. I hadn't ever done any training before. But that was my first experience of training, working with people who didn't wow. know much about what the role of a La Leche League leader might entail. Hmm. And I had uh, a, certainly a script or a curriculum to follow, but I could add in the stories and the personal experience that, that brought it alive, nice. I think, both for me and for the people I worked with. So that, that was huge. That was, mm -hmm. that was a very different kind of work for me than what I had done in the, in the banking and management consulting fields. 
And so here in Massachusetts, what happened for me is that that experience of um, becoming a leader, I was trained by someone else, and then I was asked to take this statewide position as a trainer of new leaders. That put me in touch with uh, people from the public health sphere in um, my own state and even nationally. I remember being asked to speak for the first time at a conference back then, and I'm a pretty um, entrenched introvert. It was terrifying to me mm -hmm. to think about standing up in front of um, a hotel ballroom full of people and talking about this role that had become important to me. And I think now when I look back on that, it was really how important it was to me that got me through that and helped me to, to know that if something mattered that much to me, I could do something that was really tough for me to do or to envision doing, standing up in front of a room full of people. So that, that was one experience that incredibly uh, supported what I ended up doing in my career after that. When I also think about the other people that I met, I met at conferences, at regional meetings, uh, and not all La Leche League sponsored. We were often invited as La Leche, Le La Leche League leaders mm. to, um, to be participants in conferences that were sponsored by the State Department of Public Health, yeah. by medical associations, mm -hmm. by parenting organizations. And so I because, because that you, that community, that organization had become the subject matter expert on that very sensitive and yes. previously kind of un, unaddressed yes. need of public health and women and motherhood. Right. right. And it was also in many ways my first exposure to, to advocacy, to hmm. public health advocacy work. And the folks that I met from all of those fields, from medicine, from public health, from government, from um, local community organizations, all of that exposed me to whole new ways of thinking and, mm. and even to the possibility of work. Mm. After that, I, um, as part of thinking about how I could continue, because I had been so hooked by working with women's health issues, mm -hmm. I decided to seek certification as a childbirth educator. And so that was the kind of next step, or maybe um, outside volunteerism step, because as a childbirth educator, I, was, I could be paid for the work that I did. And I worked independently for a few years out of our home. And then through some of these um, connections, people that I'd met at various um, coalition meetings or conferences, I was offered a, a also a paid position working in a community family counseling agency to provide that same childbirth education and parenting education. I was, I was starting to be seen as someone who could speak to some parenting issues. Nice. And so that family counseling center was um, my first step being paid for work that uh, I I had done somewhat independently, but now was doing under the aegis of a, an organization. Okay. And that experience, that work at that family counseling center, actually led to my co-authoring a book with the, um, the woman who was the director of the family counseling center on childbearing loss 
It had say uh, that again. On I, I co-authored a book yeah. on childbearing loss, ah, so okay. loss related to the experience of childbearing, whether that be um, miscarriage, um, infertility, stillbirth, um, neonatal mm. death, that mm. broad spectrum oh. of. Yeah. Experiences of really uh, tragic and difficult loss for and, and women the, and men. And is the book still available? It is actually. And, it's, and what, um, what's, what's the the, the official title? <laughs> tell us. Tell us. It's, <laughs> it's called Ended Beginnings. Okay. And the subtitle is Healing Childbearing Loss. Right. And and the authors of record yourself. Myself and Claudia Panuthos. Okay, um, Kathy. Catherine, Catherine Romeo, Romeo and Claudia Panuthos Great. and. Okay. Um, and that uh, also was a, a, an experience that I never would have thought was on my career radar, mm. but it grew out of the work. And mm. my, uh, my, one of my other strong beliefs about career and work is that so much can grow out of work that we do, even when we don't expect it. But in this case, that's what happened. The work at the counseling center had in fact brought us in contact with a lot of families who had experienced loss. And so what we offered and what we did with those families became a book. Wow, and it's nice. still out there. So that was quite an accomplishment, um, co-authoring a book. I think many times when, when someone publishes a work, it really uh, solidifies their identity in a given field or, a given, or having a given set of expertise. Um, but that book didn't necessarily confine you or drive you just down the, that path of, of mourning and loss as it relates to, you know, to women and, and, and childbirth. Uh, tell us about what that actually did lead to. To something totally unexpected <laughs> on my part. While I was working at that family counseling center and, and our work there related to loss had become somewhat um, known throughout the public health community. We were approached to by a woman who was coordinating a federally funded grant project to provide education and social services to pregnant incarcerated women. Mm. So women pregnant incarcerated pregnant women. incarcerated ah, okay. women, women okay. at the uh, Massachusetts State Prison for women. Mm. I talk, talk about a vulnerable community. Absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and and a community that is laced with loss. If mm. you think about mothers being imprisoned and being separated from their children, mm -hmm. pregnant women recognizing that if they're going to be incarcerated through and past the date of their giving birth, that they will be separated from their brand new infants. Mm. Yeah. So I... I understood why I and we at the counseling center were being approached, but I can still remember that initial meeting and sitting there and thinking, a prison? And it had never been on my radar screen to think about working with women who were incarcerated, anyone incarcerated, and walking in behind prison walls. Mm. But I also will never forget that that woman, who was quite a salesperson, asked if I would not give an answer until she had brought me into the prison to see what that environment would be like. And with some trepidation, I said yes. And I can only say now that it took maybe 20 minutes of walking around a compound 
where the woman I was with was known and the women who were there in the main compound out getting some exercise would approach her one after the other to say hello, to update her on how their children were doing on the outside, mm. and to talk about their fears, their needs, their concerns. I think it started to get into my bones back then, that work. And mm. so I said yes, and I have not only never regretted it, it's among the work that I've done that I'm the most proud of. Nice. Well, so that is really amazing. I am not surprised that um, even spending 20 minutes walking with that woman, you know, through the prisons before you officially accepted could have been a really powerful experience. And that that chapter, as we discussed, I think ended up being 12 to 15 years, a major, major part of your, uh, you know, your, your volunteerism, your work, um, you know, your career. Um, so tell us where that led. That work was uh, very much steeped in advocacy, as I'm sure you can understand, speaking for women who really had no voice, helping women who were in labor and giving birth um, to not be shackled to a bed, um, sometimes even handcuffed in labor. That advocacy work and my education work and, and planning with those women for the futures for their babies and themselves and by the way, largely the women I worked with were struggling with substance addiction. And that, um, that experience meant that I needed to also learn about the field of substance abuse yeah. and substance addiction. Yeah. And so I, as part of my role there, attended some federal trainings on working with people who are substance addicted. One of the issues that came up for me over and over again while working in that prison environment was burnout. I had a lot of friends at that point in public health roles and other settings, and often people would ask me, are you sure you're not getting to burnout? This is a tough environment. I honestly never felt that way. I knew what to look for. I knew what burnout, how it manifested, and I just didn't ever feel like I got to that wall. But what did happen was that my family needed me to find a benefited position as a contractor for the state. And that was how that role evolved. When the federal funding ended, the prison department at that point had recognized how valuable that work was. It honestly kept them honest in terms of how to provide better care for pregnant women. And it probably headed off some potential disasters. So they offered me a position as a contractor for the state, for the Department of Correction, which I accepted. And, however, as many contractor positions involved, there were no benefits. And my family reached a point where I needed to pick up that piece. Mm -hmm. So um, with my pretty vast expanse of, of public health colleagues, I started networking and talking to folks about what what might be out there. And because advocacy had been such a strong part of my work within the prison, a position drew me as part of a State Department of Public Health grant-funded project to provide linkages, advocacy, and assistance to economically disadvantaged women 
so that they could access cancer screenings and other forms of health care. The particular grant project that I worked on was actually cited at a large healthcare organization in the community. And so I applied for that role. It was as a regional coordinator in this statewide project. And I got the job. And so I moved from the prison into a community healthcare organization once again, and continuing to work with women, but n not specifically pregnant women, mm -hmm. rather women in general who were economically disadvantaged. Right, still a vulnerable and underserved and population, which is where the advocacy is critical. Absolutely. Right. Right. And so that work became also work that I loved. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I think about this, and, and Kevin, this opportunity to reflect on my career has just reminded me how much I've loved all the different roles I've had, yep. and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Well, that, that passion for it and the dedication to it is, is, is very important in being successful at it. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are tremendously trying and challenging areas that you've worked in. And I also think that the passion and commitment for it in, in you and in some people really works as an antidote or a buffer to burnout. You know, it's just an internal energy and drive for it. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure other people have burnout because they just get so emotionally immersed in it that they don't see anything else in life and you had other very good and mm -hmm. happy things with your that's family, right. et cetera, so you had a balance in that. That's right, yeah. that's right. And, and honestly, I also am grateful that most of the positions I've had in my life have allowed for creating that work-life balance mm -hmm. and uh, it made it possible for me to if one of the kids was sick to leave and and not yeah. um, not be yeah. limited from being able to help when one of yeah. my family needed me yeah. so. and it, it in in a sense it it is those organizations that you are affiliated with practicing what they preach mm -hmm. too, because health is a very holistic right. thing right so, that's yeah. absolutely yeah. true yeah. So that role, um, there are all these stepping stones, and, and yet I, standing here today, I can look back on that very first volunteerism experience working with the La Leche League, and I see all the threads that showed up in different ways through every job I've ever had, starting from that experience. So while I was providing the regional coordination of this state-funded project program, really, for um, economically disadvantaged women. One of, the, one of my colleagues at the Department of Public Health told me about an opportunity in California to attend a certification training program that would give me credentials as a cultural competency trainer. And her belief, as um, one of the folks who worked on the Women's Health Project, was that cultural competency was increasingly critical in the provision of any form of health care or advocacy, any form of public health work at all. And just let me step in for our, lesson, our listeners again. Um, what do you mean by cultural competency? Cultural competency is actually the ability to reach across cultures even when you don't understand fully what that other culture is, but it is the ability to respect and value and function effectively within work across cultures. Hmm. 
So originally, I thought that this certification program would be training me to understand a myriad of different cultures. And by cultures, are you talking about more than just uh, religion or ethnicity, or you're talking about the combination of religion, ethnicity, um, geographical uh, location or orientation. Mm-hmm. I mean, all yes, different aspects absolutely. that contribute to a collective sense of culture. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. A culture is essentially one's view of the world. Uh, okay. We all have it. We all have um, our own personal view of the world, but it is shaped largely by huge forces like the family we grew up in, mm-hmm. the the race that we are seen mm-hmm. as belonging to, ethnicity that we inherit um, within genes, and and then our life experiences. It's it's how we have come to learn to view the world. That's mm-hmm. what culture is, and it affects our decisions, our actions what we think about health and health care, what we think about death and dying, just any experience in life is shaped by our cultural perspective. Okay. I didn't know that then, and, um, and so I did apply for this um, certification project and was accepted and came back from California certified as a cultural competency trainer. It was actually wonderful timing because the state project that I had been working on in this women's health sphere was actually coming to an end with the federal funding that had been the foundation for it. Mm -hmm. So I really needed to be thinking about the next step, and my own organization was increasingly providing in home care and community settings health care to folks from increasingly diverse cultural populations. And by cultural populations, sure, we can talk about um, immigrants, we can talk about people from different racial and ethnic groups, but we can also talk about folks with um, different gender identities, we can talk about people from uh, populations learning to live with disabilities. We can talk about military and ex-military yeah. culture. Yeah. It's a huge mm-hmm. spectrum. And as I have um, said for years now, every single patient encounter, encounter with a patient or with any other individual in your life is always cross-cultural. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the other's culture is until we know it. Right. <laughs> and we right. initially we don't know what matters, what that what values are important to that other person. Mm-hmm. And what what comes to mind for me is that um, for for years now, um, companies have done some nominal level of what they see as uh, you know cultural awareness, cultural sensitivity in pre- in preparing business people to go to other parts of the world on, you know, on, on business matters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but what you're talking about is preparing, you know, healthcare workers, um, social workers, providers, um, to be culturally aware as they go into very personal and sensitive care, you know, healthcare mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. medical or therapeutic situations with mm-hmm. people, and often not even in an institutional setting, but in a home setting as well. That's right. So I, if you can That's talk right. a little bit about, you know, how that works and why cultural awareness is so important in those, in those kind of private and sensitive settings. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's so true. There, 
one of the approaches to cross-cultural care in the healthcare field initially had been what many of us came to call the cookbook approach, which is just looking up the recipe for this particular cultural population. But that doesn't really help people because there's always going to be someone new and someone different and someone whose cultural background we aren't familiar with. So much better if we learn skills and behaviors that can allow us to work well and effectively cross-culturally and that could be applied to anyone and should in fact be applied to everyone because every experience is going to be cross-cultural. Even in families, I think about my large Irish family and my siblings and I would probably all readily acknowledge we all have different cultural perspectives, very different. And we all grew up in the same family, we ate the same food, and and we still identify as Irish, um, but that's only one piece of cultural perspective, one piece. So this kind of work became my next passion and when I think back to that original volunteerism experience it this is the the career role that really drew on training that first experience of training that I had as a La Leche League mm-hmm. trainer um, of new leaders across the state and in this role I had to develop a curriculum for training new employees within my organization in cross-cultural care. I also was asked to speak at a number of conferences around the state, around the region, um, even some nationally, on this topic of the provision of cross-cultural care. Building upon, but departing from the cookbook orientation Mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We, um, and I have a colleague at the Department of Public Health I've worked with for years. We sometimes link to do trainings together. And we both um, are still asked, yes, but tell me how to do all this with, or tell me, describe for me this particular community or that particular population. And um, it might take a little while to win folks over, but eventually they leave feeling more empowered, I think, because they don't have to worry about encountering someone they haven't, whose population they haven't studied and instead have these general skills. Right. You focused on fundamentals mm-hmm. as opposed to specifics. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. Right. That's right. Nice. Nice. That's right. So you've been doing the multicultural work for 10 or 12 years. It's been a tremendous part of your career, a tremendous chapter. So just give us a sense of of the last couple of years in that work, kind of how it culminated for you and how you've begun at least. I know you're still being called back uh, to go in and work with folks, but how you've begun to pass the torch. Sure. So... So yes, uh, I started to think about retirement several years ago. My husband had retired. So in preparation for that, what we did was we created two training modules, one in a very general way based on the orientation training I always did with new employees on cross-cultural care and the kinds of strategies and behaviors that that work well to allow healthcare providers to be effective in in that kind of work. And we also did a second training module, and these are online video filmed modules 
So the second module we worked on was working with language interpreters for our staff to be more adept at that process, because it is a process. It's something that there is a lot to learn about in order to be effective as um, someone who is working with a patient who does not speak your own language and how a language interpreter can be brought in, generally on the telephone, by the way, because um, in the settings that my healthcare organization worked, clinicians were often in patient homes or in community settings, not in a hospital or in a large medical office. And so in because of those challenges, telephonic language interpretation is often used. So those two modules were um, a way for me to leave something of a legacy within that organization yeah. and to have the what everything I had learned about both topics not just um, go away when I left the right. organization. Right. right. So that was... Um, actually a wonderful way to think about retirement, having those in place. And then um, when I retired, I also worked with um, some community organizations as well to let them know that I was taking this step, but um, could still be available on a as needed and as possible basis to provide trainings. And so I'm really pleased about that option. It's a wonderful way to leave a career formally and yet not leave it all entirely and still have some opportunities to look forward to, but not necessarily in the same regular daily vein. Um, Just in the last couple of minutes we have, um, it's been a great conversation. Thinking back over your career, any life lessons, career lessons, learn, you know, learnings? Mm-hmm. What, what do you think made you so successful at what you've done? I think that it goes back to what I learned in that very first volunteer experience, that work that matters to me personally, that's meaningful, that that chimes with or resonates with my own values and passions is work that I love doing. And I'm so grateful for having learned that. If I hadn't had that volunteer experience, I probably would have gone back to the work that I was initially trained to Mm -hmm. do, work in the administrative sphere, and likely with a large company. And although I enjoyed that work, it didn't ignite the kind of passion that my volunteer work and experiences of advocacy and hearing other people's stories and fitting together what we have for options that help, all of that was extraordinary in opening my mind to work that could encompass all of that. And I was fortunate enough to find that and to be drawn into it. So so work that's meaningful and satisfying generally, I think, does reflect who we are and what we care most about. That's right. Well, this has been great. Thank you very much uh, for your time, for the conversation. Um, Kathy Romeo, a woman with a tremendous career, tremendous insights. Thanks. Thank you again. All right. Take care.